Namaste. This is Farinaz Raleigh, the producer of Drishti Point Yoga Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Drishti Point has been recording podcasts since 2006, and we have over 300 podcasts that we are currently uploading to this site and others. Please be sure to visit our website, drishtipoint.ca, for the top 100 podcasts. We hope this podcast will nourish your mind and open your heart. Namaste. You are listening to a special Drishti Point podcast on Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is usually a time when we think of and celebrate romantic love. And here on Drishti Point, we always like to explore how things in our lives relate to the spiritual path and relate to the teachings of wisdom. So we have in our studio today Chuck Damov, and he is been pursuing a spiritual path since his teens and that path has included explorations in Unitarian Universalism, Native traditions, Buddhism, Christian traditions, Qigong and Hindu traditions and he's here to talk to us about the subject, the broad subject of love. So welcome Chuck. Thank you, nice to be here. I thought we could start off, if you could, from your vast knowledge and explorations in all these different traditions. Help us understand what is love, and are there different kinds of love? Hmm. Well, uh, I think we know that there are different kinds of love. Um, If we just look at the dictionary definition of love in the English language, uh, it's quite extensive. And it does not only include romantic love or sexual passion. Um, Depending on the quality of the dictionary, it can be wider and wider definition. Uh, But it also includes uh, warm affection and a wholehearted liking for something or someone, a beloved person, uh, great affection for and enjoying something very much. Uh, So I think that although on Valentine's Day love often relates to romantic uh, situations, as you said, and then you end up with the Lonely Hearts Club, uh, if love is seen as something much broader and much deeper in the human heart, um, Valentine's Day (coughs) could symbolize uh, love of all kinds. I think. And can you give us some examples of those kinds of love that aren't just romantic love? Mm-hmm. Brotherly love, sisterly love, familial love, love for your parents, love for your work, love for your environment, love for your mentors, love for your colleagues, love for yourself. Uh, and uh, maybe we could add from point of drishti point, love for the teachings or love for your teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting <clears throat> that love can be so broad. Yes, well, in the end, I think, you know, many, many traditions talk about God as being in essence love and love as being in essence God. And even if there isn't God for some people, love is still the answer. I think the Beatles taught us that, among others. (laughs) All we need is love, yes. (laughs) 
Now, you've been uh, teaching Buddhism for more than 15 years, and I know that you're, you're very, very knowledgeable about that particular path, uh, spiritual path, and I'm wondering if you can speak about how love is defined and understood in Buddhism. Mm. Mm. Buddhism is a vast uh, undertaking, and uh, I would say that you know, my experience and knowledge there has been um, um, not scholarly. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are generally teachings on uh, love, and uh, actually it's part of something called the Four Universal Positive Emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, there are different names for for it, uh, for immeasurables, for infinitudes. I like to call it for universals. And there is a source in in the you know the Buddhist canon, uh, the Buddha actually teaching on love and how to develop love. Um, it's called metta or maitri in Sanskrit. So it's a, it's one of these four types of uh, actually meditation and concentration and mindfulness that can be developed but I think that the principle of it is um, you don't need to be a so-called yogi or yogini or a monk or a nun and you don't need to be a Buddhist uh, it, you'll see it, it's such a universal application what it's actually teaching so these are four different kinds of love we could say and they have the quality of uh, being infinite in their nature and their quality. Um, the goal of the meditative practice is to bring them to the level of boundlessness rather than being partial love. Mm -hmm. Partial love and partial compassion, let's say only for those who are nice to you. Mm -hmm. that's considered very easy, in fact, normal and abnormal if one doesn't respond well to someone mm -hmm. or your own children. If you don't love your children, that's considered abnormal. But to take it to a universal level actually requires uh, what's considered to be spiritual work. So you mentioned one of the metta, mm -hmm. and you mentioned that there are four. Mm -hmm. So can you give mm -hmm. us a, maybe to name what all four are, and then mm -hmm. we can talk about each of them in a little more detail. Sure. Um, uh, the great master, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master who led a wonderful retreat in Vancouver here last summer, he yeah. has a wonderful book I'd like to refer to called Teachings on Love. Mm -hmm. And in that book he describes these four positive emotions all together as the meaning of true love. So that, that's something that's probably a little bit unusual in, in the Buddhist presentations that you would normally see. Um, so the, the sub the sub parts of that true love is called metta um, or maitri in Sanskrit, karuna being translated often as compassion, uh, mudita being translated often as uh, rejoicefulness or celebration or admiration, and then upeka in Pali or upeksha in Sanskrit, um, variously translated as equanimity or inclusiveness. And the, 
And the first one is translated, metta is translated as? Um, loving kindness. Loving kindness. Love, benevolence, uh, goodwill. Um, and you, you can see that these sorts of translations have very different um, emotional resonances with those for whom English is a native language. Mm -hmm. So goodwill is quite different than love. Yes. You know, people, are you, are you going to say you love me? Did you say you love me? Or, you know, did you say you have goodwill towards me? We feel that differently. Right. So the, but those are translations of the same word. Yeah, I, I think that um, some of the more ancient languages have a richer vocabulary or broader vocabulary than in English. You might need several words to describe one term. Mm -hmm. So metta, loving kindness or goodwill. So this would be the kind of love that one would have towards people who are not maybe... Um, related to them, maybe who aren't this uh, similar to them in their interests or lifestyle? or h How exactly does it look like for us in this mm. society to have mm. metta? Mm. Well, it's something that I would wish to develop more and more all the time, so I can't say what it's like to have pure metta or infinite metta, but... Um, I think invariably it will be something that will feel uplifting mm -hmm. in in us. In fact, we're going to talk about 11 benefits that Buddha taught about doing these sorts of mindfulness meditation. Um, but it applies to ourself and to others, and the way that it's developed is, is, is taught as being very specific. Um, if we say that it's goodwill, it means that you... So it doesn't have to be somebody you don't know. It can be yourself. It can be the person you care for most. In fact, that's where we're supposed to start this meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, goodwill means that we are wishing someone to be successful, to have what it is that would be good for them. Good food, good relationships, good life, uh, good work good spiritual progress. Everything good is what you wish for them. Goodwill. And I like the term goodwill these days because it's very clearly opposed to ill will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ill will we can see when, we, when we're happy, when things go wrong for people, or when we don't want good things to happen to people. Yeah. So maybe the opposite of that might be uh, jealousy. Um, that comes more under the meditation called mudita or rejoicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one is um, the things that you feel about a person that prevent you from wishing them good is your ill will, and so the meditation starts with oneself and those who it's easiest to feel goodwill for. But it progresses, and if we ever had a more in-depth conversation about this, there's a wonderful teaching in, the, in one of the main uh, commentaries on how to go through the more and more and more difficult stages if you have anyone that you feel ill will towards. There may be people who don't. I don't know. I don't think I've ever met them. But it, <laughs> it gives stages of what's called breaking down the barriers and how to overcome resentment. So you might be able to uh, 
one way of applying this is maybe if there's someone who you have a difficult relationship with or um, maybe we would say our, our quote-unquote enemy or someone who is mm -hmm. uh, challenges us that we don't naturally have those feelings towards, your meditation might eventually include them, developing Even those eventually, feelings to them. Eventually it must, eventually, when you're ready. So let's... Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the the other three. The other next one that you mentioned is karuna or compassion. Mm -hmm. And how can we really distinguish it from loving kindness? What's the difference and what does it look like? Well, I think you could say that uh, metta, goodwill, loving kindness is focused on the good. Um, a person can be studying in school, your child, and uh, your wish is that they're, they're doing well, and your wish is that they continue to do well and that they do very well or do even better. Um, it, it has nothing to do with problems. Mm -hmm. However, if your uh, child was failing or having a real difficulty with motivation or really suffering with their school because it's not the correct fit for them, you know, and it's or the, or the people at school are being bullying them or something like that, where there's suffering involved, you know. Um, karuna is the feeling that you wish that that person would, didn't have to experience that suffering. Mm -hmm. and the more strongly that they could be relieved of that suffering and at even a more committed activist level that I myself will do something to relieve them from that suffering. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when we see people who maybe don't have a home to live in mm -hmm. on a regular basis or people who clearly are suffering from some kind of addiction or mm -hmm. or we could say mental affliction or mm -hmm. mental addiction mm -hmm. or mental suffering that we feel the pain of that and we mm -hmm. wish that they didn't have that and mm -hmm. we next next step of it would be to actually be part of the solution to help relieve that suffering I think the eventual step would be uh, again in this in the in the meditation of developing strong real compassion and extending universally in as a mind state again uh, the the teaching in the main commentary I'd be discussing uh, starts with oneself learning to have compassion for oneself learning to understand one's own sufferings um, and then uh, moving uh, to a person who it's easy to feel compassion for mm-hmm then towards a person that you don't know and normally people don't care about because there's no personal benefit or involvement. And then finally, compassion for those people who are actually hurting us. Oh, very, very interesting. So it always does end with the... The most difficult. The most difficult. Yeah. yeah if you start with the most difficult, uh, the teachings say the chances are it won't work mm -hmm. because you'll develop fatigue. Uh, compassion fatigue mm -hmm. or you'll develop too much anger uh, your mind will be too disturbed because you wouldn't be developed enough already you wouldn't have the internal balance 
So, you know, we live in a world where there's much suffering, there's much violence, there's much poverty, um, and we don't even have to go to another country to see this. We can see this just in the neighborhood that we're recording this interview in the downtown east side. So what um, is it possible to have too much compassion? Is, it, is there a danger in feeling suffering too much? Hmm. Well, what do you think? Well, I, I think um, I see this a lot in young people who are very sensitive, that the suffering they see is very um, can lead people to despair or hopelessness, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's a very um, uh, it's not a place where a person can then contribute to the solution. Right, right, because you drown in your compassion. Your compassion becomes lack of compassion for yourself in a way because you take on so much suffering you're suffering too much mm-hmm. mentally emotionally uh and see no end to the problem you know and then so what you've done is you've increased your your own suffering which was not the goal of that meditation and you haven't necessarily done anything about anybody else's suffering so it's kind of contrary to what one wanted to do so um if you think about it in terms of these teachings, there's two ways of uh, it deals with that. Because the goal and the outcome of universal true love is a positive inner spirit, mm-hmm. regardless. Not to say that difficult things won't happen and haven't happened, but um, it, it, it's not only focused on the worst things of life. It's, it's a balance also of what are the good things in life. And, and fundamentally, it's optimistic. Mm-hmm. Love is optimistic. So we could, we could see our, our pain that we may feel when we see someone else who's suffering as an affirmation or as a uh, positive thing that we have the ability to feel that mm. and that that ability is a, a helpful one on the spiritual path. Yeah, and but I think it also means that when we're talking about love that we're not focusing too much on compassion and suffering mm-hmm. because karuna is only one of these four. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I think that uh, an interpretation of Buddhism is too much. We go into this talk of compassion <laughs> and suffering, really. It, well, it's true, you know. You know and that, uh, all and life is suffering. Well, <laughs> that's one way of saying it. Uh, I think a better way is saying that uh, life involves suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so there is, there's, there's the goodwill as well as the wish to relieve from suffering. Those two are, are equally important, and they can be done as separate meditations, and they both, it is said, uh, give the same meditative results. Mm-hmm. So it's a question if there's a person who naturally um, gravitates towards a compassionate soul you know, always wanted to help out the animals or or those, the, the unfortunate, fine. But if there's someone who wants to, um, you know, always promote the good uh, through entertainment, through celebration, through planting trees, through whatever, that's just as valid as spiritual path. That's just as full of love and, and uh, you know. And then also uh, Mudita, the third one, uh, which is 
sometimes translated as rejoicing, or you could say celebration, is the mm -hmm. idea that, okay, you wished for someone that they would get out of the hole they're in. That's your compassion. They, they're out of the hole, or they never were in one. You wish them goodwill through your metta that they succeed in their university, let's say. You know, their studies, mm -hmm. their passion. When they do... You don't turn around immediately and look for the next uh, problem to solve, necessarily. You take the time to go to the graduation ceremony and the prom, and you celebrate mm -hmm. with the person. You're, I'm so happy <laughs> that you, you know, got to do your... Um, one of your life passions with Drishti Point. Why can't I celebrate that, too? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good balance. Yeah, that's a beautiful compassion. one. Yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful part of the spiritual path when it includes rejoicing and celebrating. Celebrating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have two friends who, when they heard that, they took that as their main yogic path because they <laughs> said, it's the easiest. We just have to look around, and whenever anybody's smiling makes us feel good. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's then, a fun one. Yeah, and um, but and also it's the antidote to jealousy. Mm -hmm. So it's also there's it's easy to celebrate with the person who you really have a lot of goodwill for, right? Yes. But the person who got the job that you wanted mm -hmm. and got the girl that you wanted, that's a little harder to feel mudita <laughs> about. So you know e each one of these to get it to a universal level where it includes everybody. Those those are advanced. Uh, emotional states, I would say. So we're always taught to start with ourselves, with an individual situation, and with something that's workable, step by step. Don't start with the most difficult one right away. Yeah, that make, that's very logical. Now, um, the fourth one, I think, is um, a little harder to understand because mm -hmm. the English word, it's not self-evident for people mm -hmm. who might not be familiar mm -hmm. with this word. Mm -hmm. Equanimity, mm -hmm. or you mentioned inclusivity, and this is upeka. Mm -hmm. So what exactly, does, what exactly is equanimity? Yeah, you're right. It seems to be one where there's many different explanations and interpretations that I've seen according to different uh, Buddhist traditions and uh, even from teacher to teacher and book to book. But if we say equanimity, if you say it's an internal balance, so from one sense it's, it is the glue that holds the other three together that would allow it to go to universality because if the person who's nicest to you and it's obvious you feel love and rejoicing for them on the one hand is here and on the other hand the person who's always been your nemesis and you're having the tough time feeling you know, uh, the love and the compassion and the rejoicing for, and they're both in the same room, you know, the dear friend and the, and the stranger and the mm -hmm. enemy type thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you have and develop your equanimity, you will see that essentially they're both human beings and they want the same thing. You know, they want their life to go well, right? And they're afraid of death and they're subject to the same things. There's just some kind of you know, issue, uh, mm -hmm. some different relationships, and, you know, that's sort of the mystery of life, why they happen. That's very interesting. M my yoga guru would often describe yoga as balance. And when I hear you speak of upeka, 
I now can un- gain cl- deeper clarity on what he was trying to communicate when he said balance. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, balance. So that the person who rejects you doesn't throw you completely off. And the person who accepts you doesn't throw you completely off so that you don't kind of throw your life away and go to Las Vegas because somebody said how beautiful you are and change your life like that, (laughs) you know, Um, or because somebody, uh, you know, looks at your partner the wrong way that you go looking for a gun. I mean, it might sound extreme, but these these things happen because because of the mental reactions we have. You know, yeah, and there's no there's no balance. A lack of balance and a lack of uh, inner balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and perspective, and inclusivity. This idea that you know we are all in this same boat on the same planet. You know, mm-hmm. we are born and we live and we have a life and we pass on. We're all in exactly the same boat. Mm-hmm. So that understanding that no one at the most essential level is different from who we are. And has these same emotional wishes, including animals, let's say. Uh, all the, you know, we have PETA, and we have so many groups that are wanting to protect animals, right? So the teachings would say, you know, may all beings be happy or have metta or goodwill or love because all beings want. Want that. And therefore all beings deserve that. Mm-hmm. In in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they've done bad things and they don't necessarily deserve it right now. But if they had it, they wouldn't be doing those bad things. So we wish it for them. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to suffer, even if they think they do, like self-cutting or something. It's there's a kind of a secondary gain reason they'll explain. I needed it to feel alive or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or somehow that relieves my, my mental suffering or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so the teachings say, may everyone be free from suffering because everybody wants to be free from suffering, right? Mm-hmm. May everyone enjoy the good things that they have because people want to enjoy the good things that they have. They don't want to feel afraid immediately that somebody's going to take it away from me. Somebody's going to trash me, you know. Now, where do all these teachings come from? Is there a particular text that they're uh, that they come out of, or how? Mm-hmm. Where do they come from? Well, from what I understand, they are taught in all the Buddhist traditions, to to some extent, uh, the Theravadan tradition or the Southern Buddhist tradition in uh, Sri Lanka and. Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, and so forth, and Vietnam, and also in the northern, what are called the Bodhisattva traditions, Tibetan Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, as far as I know. I'm not an expert in, you know, any or all of these, but (coughs) one of the most common sources for it is a huge manual of meditation called The Path to Purity, um, or the Visuddhimagga by a 4th century Indian man, uh, Buddha Gosha, and uh, it's published in English. And um, it was written in order to uh, maintain the living tradition in Sri Lanka in those days. So he wrote this commentary uh, to four lines that the Buddha had taught a thousand years after the Buddha had passed away, and this book, <laughs> this book, The Path of Purity, became um, really the uh, uh, the accepted commentary for a th- 1,500 years 
as uh, the, the fundamental reference. Now, what were those four lines? Of course, it begs the question. <laughs> well, it says that someone one day came to the Buddha in the night, and uh, I think it was the night, um, and asked the following question. Uh, <coughs> the inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. And so I ask of Gautama Buddha, who is it who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? <laughs> and so the Buddha thoughtfully replied and said, any person who wishes sincerely to disentangle this tangle, i.e. a spiritual practitioner, who then bases their life on an ethical foundation, a wholesome foundation, and on that foundation practices mindfulness and concentration and also deep understanding and does so with skill and with great energy, such a spiritual practitioner will succeed in disentangling this tangle. Mm-hmm. Now, from that answer, how did the four immeasurables come? Well, uh, Buddha Gosha took these four lines that the Buddha taught as the way to disentangle the entire tangles of our life, inner and outer, and said, so what this means, I will explain in the following two paragraphs. And he explained it very succinctly. And then he said, but unfortunately, most people who nowadays are devoting their lives as monks and nuns to pursuing this path to purity and nirvana don't get it out of these two paragraphs. So now I will explain it in more detail, about a thousand pages of it. <laughs> so the first section was how to develop the foundation of ethics. Mm -hmm. The second section was how to develop mindfulness and concentration. Mm -hmm. And the third section was called how to develop deep understanding. And those three things are taken um, as the essence of the Buddhist path, especially in the Theravadan tradition, ethics, concentration, mindfulness and deep understanding. So these teachings of the four uh, universal positive emotions are taught in the section of developing mindfulness and concentration. So now, what can we understand are the results or the benefits of practicing these kinds of love? Hmm. Well, um, considering that we, that there's, 70 pages of commentary how to develop these meditations and that they're very specific and we haven't really gone through this, we would be talking about the end result mm -hmm. if a person did this as an actual, you know, serious practice like anything else you do going to the gym. But uh, it's quite um, motivating. Uh, Buddha sp spoke about 11 different advantages that would... Uh, accrue to a person who successfully developed their metta meditation or, or any of these four. Uh, one sleeps in comfort. One wakes in comfort. One dreams no bad dreams. One is dear to human beings. One is dear to non-human beings. Uh, 
deities and angels would guard one. Such things as fire, poison, and weapons would somehow not affect one. Uh, one's mind is easily concentrated. The expression on your face will be serene. And we know what that expression looks like, I think. One dies unconfused. And if you penetrate even no higher, you will continue on past this life in uh, emotional states of love and compassion and rejoicing and wholesomeness. That's plenty motivation. Even one or two of those are plenty motivation mm -hmm. to develop those qualities in us. Mm -hmm. So now you have been um, teaching Buddhism for many, many years, and now I know you're uh, again exploring um, and broadening your, your love for Unitarianism and Universalism. Can you talk a little bit about what those are, how we can understand that particular path? Um, there is a, a tradition called Unitarian Universalism, mm -hmm. and I think in its words, in the, in the title, it, it explains pretty well the principle. <laughs> Unitarian is that, for example, does love belong to any tradition? You know, is love a tradition? Mm -hmm. Is there any ownership, you know? Is there Muslim ownership of love, Christian ownership of love, you know? So the unifying principles that are the highest principles uh, of the human spirit, let's say, mm -hmm. or even beyond that, um, there, I believe, I, I mean, I truly believe there are common principles that actually are deeper and more unifying than those things that separate us in our culture wars and religious wars and sectarian wars. And even if they're not wars, just our feeling of otherness and separation and superiority and all those things, you know. Mm -hmm. And universalist is universal truths and universal love. And um, again, it's pretty hard to argue. If someone has universal love, it's pretty hard to argue <laughs> that that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and specifically the principles of, uh, let's say, Unitarianism. Uh, the Canadian Unitarian Council promotes, for example, uh, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, uh, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and finally, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Now, that sounds very, you can find those concepts in every spiritual path, I would say. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, coming back to the topic of love that we started with, um, 
Is there anything that you, any reading or any um, thing that really inspires you that kind of encompasses all that we've been talking about in terms of our discussion about love? Well, in fact, there is. <laughs> <laughs> and I just happened to have brought it with me. Oh, very good. And um, there also is a wonderful quote from Virgil who said that love conquers all mm. and uh, maybe we're not into conquering but uh, I think if we take love at its greatest breadth of understanding we can see uh, or resonate with that well I think it's well known that um, in the New Testament uh, there is a uh, reading in Corinthians Mm-hmm. And it's been translated in many different ways. Um, and I would like to share it. Please. So in this case, uh, St. Paul was speaking in a letter to the Corinthians. And uh, where this famous passage comes from has the context of, just prior to this reading, he was saying that there are such things as spiritual gifts, but they all come from the same divine or universal source. So there are those who are prophetic. There are those who are healers. There are those who are miracle workers. There are those who are teachers, apostles, administrators, lay people, whatever. Those are all spiritual gifts um, that are given to us, so to speak, by um, by the universal spirit. But not everybody can be everything, and not everybody needs to be everything. What it is, is we should desire to develop the highest that we have within ourselves and be content. If we're a healer, be the best healer we can be. Mm-hmm. And if someone else is a teacher, rejoice that they're the teacher and you're the healer. We all have our place. And then he says... But I will show you a still more excellent way. Because if I speak in the tongues of all men and of all angels, but have not love in my heart, all I am is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I were to develop and have prophetic powers... And if I were to understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I were to have all the faith so as I could move mountains, but I had no love in my heart, I am still nothing. If I were to give away all I have for the sake of the poor, or if I were to deliver my body to be burned and had not love in my heart, I would gain nothing. So what is love? Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So faith, hope, and love abide, is the end of the quote. But of these three, the greatest is love. So earnestly desire the spiritual gifts to develop yourself the best way possible. But make love your aim. That's very beautiful. And a um, beautiful thing that we can offer our listeners to make love your aim for this special day and hopefully to continue and, and feel inspired in every day of your life. So we're going to end with a song, and would you like to tell us a little bit about this song? Well, as what you just said, hopefully we could do this for not only today, Valentine's Day, to uh, spread love with ourselves and others. Um, and if we do, we say hallelujah, don't we? <laughs> hallelujah. I love that <laughs> word. I really do. It's a beautiful rejoicing word. Yes. So thank you so much, Chuck. It's been really wonderful to have you here on Drishti Point. Thank you very much. And I hope that there will be more opportunities for us to continue our discussion. Good. Namaste. It's Far again. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to visit our website, drishtipoint.ca, for the best of the best Drishti Point podcasts. And if you like this podcast and want to support our work, please consider becoming a Drishti Point member or making a donation of any amount to support the work we do to spread the light and love of yoga. We wish you health, happiness, prosperity, longevity, and vitality. Namaste.